Welcome to the Internal Comms Podcast with me, Katie McCauley. Listeners, the reason that I launched this podcast back in January 2019 was to have conversations like the one you're about to hear. Nita Clark is perhaps the only woman in history to be awarded an OBE from the Queen for her services to employee engagement. If you know another, please do let me know. In 2009, Nita and David McLeod published a study called Engaging for Success, which had been commissioned by the then Labour government under Tony Blair and later championed by the Conservatives under David Cameron. The report became the seminal study into employee engagement and sparked an entire movement, Engage for Success. Nita has had a long and fascinating career. Put aside the fact that she used to sing with David Bowie, for many, many years she's been a leading figure in the trade union movement and today is still prominent in the championing of employee rights and employee voice in the workplace. I do hope that you enjoy this conversation as much as I did. So listeners, without further ado, I give you Nita Clark. Nita, it is an absolute joy to have you on the Internal Comms podcast. There are so many questions I'd love to ask you. Your career, your experience has been so rich and so varied, but also incredibly relevant, I think, to our listeners. But... To pick a starting point, let's pick 2009. And you and David McLeod are probably just about to launch the Engaging for Success report, which becomes the seminal study into employee engagement. What led up to you and David writing that report? Well, first of all, thank you very much for asking me to come and do this. It's a real pleasure to do it. All these years on, I'm still completely obsessive with employee engagement and can bore for Britain on the topic. Just a bit of background, which will explain why I got involved in this work in the first place. So for 17 years off and on, I was a trade union official with Unison. And then I spent from 2001 to 2007 at Number 10 Downing Street as Tony Blair's advisor on trade unions and employment issues. And then when I left number 10, when Tony left, I got this job as director of the Involvement and Participation Association. And hopefully we can talk a bit about that in a minute. But that's a, it's a not-for-profit charity that really firmly believes in employee engagement, particularly in listening to employee voice. So because I'd got this job, I started reading all this stuff that was around on, on employee engagement. And it seemed to me that there were some really important insights about how if you find the sweet spot between people's motivation and their interest and the purpose of the organisation, you can really mobilise people to their full effect. So I went to the then Secretary of State, Peter Mandelson, and said, look, I think the government should be interested in this for two reasons. Firstly, because we are directly or indirectly a huge employer in this country. And if there are some insights about how to treat people better, how to improve performance, then we ought to be interested as a government. Secondly, you know, we've always had a huge productivity gap in this country. And it just seemed to me that it could be related to the fact that basically only about a third of the UK workforce are actively engaged, all the figures show. I mean, whichever the house you look at, you know, Gallup or any of the others, the figures are broadly the same. 
So anyhow, I went to Peter and said, look, I think that this is something we ought to find out a bit more about. Does this stuff exist? And if it does, what can organisations do? And he asked me to work with a wonderful man, my work husband, as I now call him. <laughs> In fact, I only saw him yesterday, David McLeod, and we spent a year going around the country talking to people about employee engagement, looking at examples of it, looking at the literature and the research. And then, in, as you say, in 2009, we published the Engaging for Success report. And since then, because interestingly, although the report was written for the then Labour government, it was then very strongly taken up by the coalition government and has had strong underpinning government support ever since. So we set up a task force to take the work that was in Engage for Success Forward. It was launched by the then Prime Minister David Cameron in 2011. And we've been working as a pro bono organisational movement, I suppose you'd say, Engaging for Successes, to try and get people both to understand the importance of this employee engagement stuff, what it is, and even more importantly, what they can then do about it. Right. Now, there's a lot to unpicking all that. But let's dig into some of the specifics. We will put the uh, link to the report so people can download the whole. I mean, it's a long report. Mm. And what's incredibly impressive about the report, there's many incredibly impressive things about it, there's so many case studies in Mm. it. Mm. So you get the theory, you get the research and the background, but you also get plenty of demonstrable examples of where this is happening. But essentially, you identify four enablers, don't you, of employee engagement. And I wonder if we could just sort of dig into those. So let me be clear, this is not a template This is not a kind of model of employee engagement. It's just that when David and I were going around the country, it sort of emerged after all the people that we spoke to and all the organisations that we looked at, that basically there were four things which, if organisations thought about and acted upon, would help in their employee engagement. Now, as I say, they're really lenses in the sense of through which you can look at your existing practice and think about how if you take some of these strands forward, you know, you can impact positively. So just quickly, the first of those is this strategic narrative. And this, of course, is where internal comms is absolutely critical. What's the story of the organisation? Where has it come from? Where is it now? And critically, where is it going? Because that gives this line of sight between what I'm doing. And it really doesn't matter if I'm somebody who's just joined a junior of the organisation or if I'm doing work like, you know, cleaning and support work, that sense of belonging is Mm. incredibly important. Yes. And organisations ignore that at their peril. And I think that so many organisations kind of take it for granted. So it's very interesting in the National Health Service, for example, the majority of people working in hospitals don't believe that the primary purpose of their organisation is to cure patients. And when you ask them, well, what do they think it is? They tell you, well, actually, we think the primary purpose is to balance the books. Yes. So do you see what I mean? You're losing sight of the kind of noble purpose or the core. And honestly, organisations, including people who are often question marks over their approach towards their employees. But if you take an employer like McDonald's, the fast food chain, I mean, they take this stuff incredibly seriously. Yes, yes. And getting pride in people who may be flipping burgers, but are nevertheless doing a really great public service. Yes. I mean, this is not specific simply to organisations who are obviously doing a service, if you see what I mean. Yes. So it's really, really important that people understand the purpose of the organisation and feel an affinity to it. 
Yes. And understand what can I do as part of that purpose for the organisation. And too many organisations just take that for granted. Or, in fact, the leadership don't actually have a story. And if your only story is shareholder value... Yes. Well, A, it's not differentiating. B, it's terribly disengaging. Quite. As David always says, nobody ever got out of bed in the morning to increase shareholder value. (laughs) And he's completely right about that. So there's that. That's the first thing. The second thing is how good is my immediate manager? Because at the end of the day, my day-to-day experience is mediated through my relationships with the people around me. Key relationship is my line manager. Does my line manager know how to manage people? Or are they simply a process junkie, if you see what I mean? I do. So, you know, this sense of, oh, we are rubbish at this in this country. I mean, we make people managers and then, you know, because they might have been quite good at the technical job they last did, and then we don't support them to develop skills in managing people. Yes. And why that is so nutty is because we know that people join organisations, but they leave managers. Yes. And so investing in the people capabilities of line managers is, in my view, absolutely fundamentally critical to this. And I don't blame line managers. I'm not kind of, you know, attacking them. I mean, some people are just, I think, probably instinctively quite good at managing other people or developing other people, but others aren't. Yes. And if you've grown up in an organisation which is command and control, then you don't really know, do you, how to manage people. So, it's you know, you're not going to suddenly wake up in the morning and develop the skill. You're going to need support. And it's also a question in a sense, what do we expect to managers now? If it's a kind of whole disciplinary and grievance and the manager is there to keep you under control, Mm -hmm. well, that's a very old-fashioned model because I think people want managers to support them, develop them, have one-to-ones, be very interested in them and understand what makes them tick as people. Agreed, absolutely. So that's the second. The third thing, and this, in our view, is almost the one that's sort of least developed in this country, is how do you listen to your employees? And so while, as I said at the beginning, internal comms is incredibly important, if comms is simply a one-way cascade of messages, important though that is, You're missing a whole dynamic here because how do you listen? Because employees have views, firstly, about the job that they do. And frankly, if you want to know how to do something better, ask the person who's doing it. It's usually quite a good idea. But employees have views about the organisation. They have insights about customers. They have views about how to make the organisation better. How do you listen? Now, if you've got trade unions, that's one and it's an incredibly important channel. But if you don't, what are you doing to really get granular. Now, some people say, well, oh, look, I'm doing a staff survey and that's fine and I'm not against staff surveys, but they give you a snapshot of employee opinion at a particular moment in time. What they don't normally tell you, which is what you need to know, is why yes. are employees feeling that way? Yes. What's going on? Why are they feeling that way? And so having listening mechanisms, whether it's broader staff councils, quality circles or town halls, I mean, there are lots of ways of doing it. And the reason, let me just say why this is incredibly important at the moment, is, of course, that the latest FRC code on corporate governance makes it clear that you have got to demonstrate that the board is listening to employees. Now, there are various ways of doing it. But how can you demonstrate that you're listening if you don't have listening mechanisms? Simply sending a non-executive director around once a year is not going to work. You need to have a far more systematic. And that's an area I'm really interested in because I think, as I say, we are not very good at that, broadly speaking, at this country. So that's the third. And the fourth is, and it sounds simple and it's really difficult, 
do the values on the wall, and everybody's got values on the wall, (laughs) are they reflected in day-to-day behaviours? Because we can all have values, but at the end of the day, it's what we do. Do we fulfil those values? Do they match? Mm. Are they a mirror image? Because if the value says, oh, we treat everybody with respect, most organisations have a value that says that one way or the other. But actually, everybody knows that there's a culture of bullying and harassment. And what does that mean? That means there's no trust. Exactly. And the lack of trust is the most corrosive thing in an organisation. And you don't get employee engagement without building trust. There's a complete lack of credibility. Yes, exactly. As you say, that say-do gap. Yeah, exactly. It's not working. So when you reflect on where employee engagement has come over the last decade, where are we? (laughs) Well, I think it's really interesting that... You know, I think we are in a better place than we were. When David and I started this work, and it's not because of our work, it's just the way I think things have developed. You know, this was seen as a very nice and soft and fluffy and, you know, yes, HR and all that people stuff. It's not something for boards. You know, it's not a metric we need to worry about. We should look at the financial sheets. But I mean, you know, maybe we might look at attrition rates, but we wouldn't have an understanding at board level of our people strategy and our who. Now, not everybody has got to that place, but quite a lot of organisations now know that actually how your people are feeling about the organisation will probably be able to tell you quite a lot about how effective an organisation you are. Right. You know, how good, for example, your customer services, your net promoter score. I mean, there is more acceptance, it seems to me, that, as it were, happy stuff means happy customers. Yes. I mean, broadly speaking. Now, and that's great. And as I said, there's the new FRC code, which is definitely going to push in that direction. And you've got more investors looking at the record of companies in terms of their people and so on. So I think we've kind of moved to a place where people know that the people agenda is important. Where I'm not sure that we've got to yet is knowing what to do about it. Right, okay. You know, so at least I think, you know, you're not going to look like a fool in an organisation if you think, listen, I think we need to think about our people strategies. And that's particularly true now when you've got lots of skill shortages. Yes. Many organisations, you've got to be an employer of choice now. Otherwise, you're going to go under. And when you've got things like Glassdoor and other, you know, being absolutely open about what it's really like to work here. Yes. No amount of corporate spin and, and, you know, glossy leaflets and bullshit, to be completely honest, is going to, people people know what it's like. So in this whole era, I do think that there is, as I say, much more understanding that you have got to be seen as an employer that people want to join. Now, what do we do about it internally to try and make that real? That still, in my view, is a challenge. There are still many organisations that are doing really great and good stuff. Mm-hmm. Yes. I mean, and there are lots of best companies to work for and all the rest of it where you can see great examples of what people are doing. I'd make two points about this. One is that you have to then sustain it. Right, okay. Because what is quite interesting is some of the examples that we had in our report 10 years ago, some of them are still going strong and going great guns Mm, mm. on engagement. Others, maybe because they've been taken over by other companies or the culture has changed. It's not linear, in other words. absolutely. You've got to keep tending this garden. You've got to keep thinking about how you're going to develop it. So I do think that that is challenging for those organisations who are on the journey. But on the other hand, so many people say to me, look, you know, God, how do I boil this ocean? Where do I start? That's my next question. Uh, What what, what do I do? Well, 
One of the things I, I really do think could be helpful is if you just took those four enablers and sat down with a group of colleagues and say, right, let's think about scoring ourselves against these four things. And where then is the kind of low-hanging fruit here? Right, yes. And I suspect that the story bit probably is one of the easiest things to start getting to grips with. And yes. again, I say again, this is where the uh, you know internal communications function can really be a motivator and a change agent in an organisation. Because actually getting people to express the story, I mean, even the most sort of grad grind Victorian mill owner will kind of have a degree of pride in the organisation. Yes. And if you can kind of tap into that, yes. you know, and get them to talk about it, then I think... I think starting that conversation, but I think also the other thing is, given that in this day and age, the greatest threat to any organisation, public or private, is reputational risk. Mm -hmm. Think about it. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, because in this era of complete transparency, nothing remains secret, does Absolutely. it? Absolutely. Think of all those companies who've come a cropper. So one of the arguments, it seems to me, for thinking about how we listen to employee voice is that actually employees, in that sense, are the canary in the coal mine. Right. Because if you really create an environment and a culture where they tell you what's going on, you will know the reality about what's happening in your organisation and you can do something about it. I mean, if you remember when Dave Lewis took over at Tesco, he sent this email out saying, you know, I'm new, tell me all about the organisation. He got thousands of responses and among those responses were people effectively telling him that bad stuff was going on that he really needed to think about. Yes. Now, I think at one level it's interesting because it shows that actually there was a quite open culture at Tesco because people were, were quite willing, when asked, you to, know, speak up. To, to speak up. Exactly. But what are your mechanisms, your early warning mechanisms for things that are about, that are going on that are unacceptable? It's a really interesting question, isn't it? Why do people stand by and let bad stuff happen in an organisation? Are they too scared to speak out? Are they inured to bad practice? So I think that this thing about listening, because then you open up a whole great conversation sense, within the organisation. Now, you may have to go through a bit of pain because everybody whinges. <laughs> I mean, God, you know, but if you can kind of get through that pain a bit and get to the other side and get to that dialogue, which says, well, look, this is what we do as an organisation. These are kind of the things we believe in. What do we need to do, all of us, to live that, to make it real? Absolutely. And I think that conversation about what sort of culture do we want here? What should it feel like on a day-to-day -day basis working here? is a really positive conversation to have. Yes, you know? absolutely. And people be feeling involved exactly. and valued in that conversation. Exactly. But also, exactly. it's their wisdom. Why would you not want to get the wisdom out of their heads? You're oh, paying for it. Precisely. <laughs> so you precisely. might as well go for it. Precisely, because you're absolutely spot on there. Because, you know, if I said to a chief finance officer, oh, it's okay if this incredibly expensive bit of kit only works a third of the time, they'd kind of think I was insane. Well, yeah, and then how come it's okay that, let's say, only a third of the workforce is actively engaged? I mean, what a waste. What a waste for the productive capacity of the organisation. But also, what a waste for those people. Absolutely. Because being badly treated or kind of ignored or just kind of not really thought of or not developed at work is so corrosive to your well-being. Yeah, so absolutely. it absolutely feeds into that whole mental health and well-being agenda too. I mean, it's all part of that same constellation of things which lead to people feeling 
bad about themselves at work. And it's awful. Mm. It's awful when you hear some of these stories about how people feel about how they've been treated. Because it's not just at work, because what happens is you carry that around with you. Yes. So it's in your data, you know, when you're at home and, and course, you know, yes. the undermining, the, the, all of that stuff, it just impacts 24 hours a day, doesn't mm. it? You and David ended up actually being awarded an OBE for your <laughs> services to employ <laughs> engagement. It was just thrilling, I can't tell you. I Because you actually awarded it by the Queen. I was, I was incredibly lucky. I had Her Majesty the Queen and, you know, they tell you what to do when you go to um, Buckingham Palace. You know, there's about 100, 120 people getting various awards and so on. They tell you, you know, you go up, Her Majesty's standing there, you curtsy, she pins the medal on you and shakes your hand and and off you go and the next person. And it was just the most incredible experience because what happens is there's somebody standing, obviously, behind Her Majesty saying, this is Nisha Clark and the award is for employee engagement. And so, you know, I did everything right. I didn't fall over, I curtsied, (laughs) I did all of that stuff right. And then Her Majesty said, well, tell me, what is employee engagement? I thought, oh my God, how long have you got? <laughs> so I started burbling. I mean, I'm afraid my elevator pitch is not very good. I was going, oh, well, it's about getting the best of people out of work and making sure that, they're, <laughs> you know, you could see that this was not really what was required. And they had to sort of carry me off, <laughs> still burbling about employee engagement and how much it mattered. So, uh, you know, as David always says to me, just try and be a bit more succinct, Nita, when you're talking about this stuff. <laughs> it's great for the Queen to ask. Though. Oh, it was lovely. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> absolutely. So it'd be nice to ask you a little bit about the work that you're doing currently, because in researching for this episode, I looked up the Involvement and Participation Association. Well done. It's a bit of a mouthful. Uh, yes. Expecting it to be, I don't know why, but it sounds very modern and sounds like a new body that's, you know, at the forefront of understanding the current many complex issues to do with work-life balance in today's workforce and et cetera, et cetera. And I discovered this is an organisation that was set up in 1884. Yeah. yeah. So, yes. So, well, it. basically... You know, the IPA has always believed that sanity is possible in employment relations, employee <laughs> relations, despite all the evidence to the contrary. <laughs> we've always believed, you know, that it is in the interest both of the organisation and of the people working in it that you find that sweet spot, which is the mutual interest spot. And that means, you know, being in organisations, particularly organisations that listen as we've talked about before, to the people who work there. And so we have always been a very strong proponent to a partnership between particularly trade unions and managers and employers. So, for example, Lord John Monks, who used to be the General Secretary of the TUC and then of the ETUC, he's my president. And we've always, as I say, very strongly worked with trade unions and others who want to develop a partnership approach at work. So we do a lot of work in that field, but we also do a lot of work helping organisations think through how they listen to their employees. So we've, in the last year, we've set up in big, major, major organisations, staff councils, right? you know, so that uh, using the information and consultation machinery that there is. So representative structures within organisations, yes. we work with big and small to kind of give them a mechanism an architecture, if you like, Mm. within which they can listen. So, you know, electing people onto staff councils and so on. I also do a lot of sort of consciousness raising on this topic, if you like, still, because although, as we've said, we're in a better place than we were, it's still trying to get organisations to think about this, but also 
to focus on what they can do. I would say this, look, I don't think employee engagement belongs to any one profession. It doesn't belong to HR or to internal comms. It belongs to the whole organisation and it has got to be something that leaders in the organisation themselves take seriously. Because if you spend years trying to bash your head against a leadership that doesn't want to listen... It hurts. It hurts, exactly. So while it's not owned by any one particular profession, in some organisations we know, it's been fantastic because it has been the internal comms people who've kind of taken this baton. Yes, and run with it. In others, it's been the HR. In others, Mm -hmm. interestingly, it's been OD. Uh Because of course, you know, if you think about it, every organisation now faces the challenge of change, as it were. No organisation is standing still. We know that people don't like change. Yes. So if you're not engaging them in the change, they're going to be resistant. They're going to say, yes, yes, oh, that's very, very interesting. And then go back to their offices and do the reverse or don't do anything. You know, so all of that. So actually, OD professionals and change professionals, whatever title mm-hmm. they have, have become very interested in this as a understanding how you take the workforce with you. Just to change tack slightly, because I know you've had a lot of involvement in the trade union movement, and particularly with Unison, mm-hmm. for people that don't know, it's mainly the union, I think it's the largest trade union in the UK, representing public sector workers, am I right? I still sense, and I'm not going to name names here, but I still sense a slightly adversarial Uh relationship between the corporate entity and their trade union. How do we, can we, move forward on that? Well, I think the truth is that there's a huge variety of opinion in the trade union movement at the moment as to how best to increase your influence, increase your membership, and become a voice to be listened to both within your own organisation, but also nationally. Mm. And there are a variety of views. Now, as I've said already, I subscribe to the the job of a trade union is to work with the employer to get the best possible outcome for the people in the organisation. I'm strongly in favour of effective trade unions. Absolutely, I am. But I think that unions need to be careful in understanding how the world has moved on. And the difficulty that many unions experience in recruiting younger workers, you know, for whom a union experience is just not something that they've ever come across their parents on. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's not like it was in the old days where you handed down your membership from a father to son, and it was usually father to son. So I think understanding what younger people and people outside those traditional industries want out of work, not making assumptions. I think we have to be very careful, particularly and I'm maybe going to make myself unpopular saying this, but, you know, simply decrying the gig economy, failing to understand what some people want out of it, the sort of flexibility of work that they do want, you know, and simply saying we're going to banish gig working just seems to me to, A, I think it's unrealistic, and B, it just does not understand the aspirations of a whole range of people. Now, if what you want to say is, getting rid of unfairnesses, Mm -hmm. which undermine the position or even actually reduce the likelihood of people joining these industries. You know, what's the fair bottom line? That's a whole different conversation. Absolutely. You know, and it's very interesting. I just read this morning that the state of California Mm -hmm. has just decided that they're going to legislate against aspects of the gig economy. And that's why I think Matthew Taylor's report on good work was so important because it sort of looked in more depth at what some of these more difficult issues 
around the gig economy, you know, simply pretending that we're going to go back to a place where we have large factories stuffed full of people on production lines producing widgets. I mean, that world, I'm afraid, has gone. There is no future for the British economy simply like that. And if you look at things like redeveloping the shipbuilding or the aerospace industry, they don't operate in the way that they used to. It is not a straightforward production line. You need people who can think, who can make changes, who are adaptable, who are collaborative, all of those things. Yes. And trade unions need to get their heads around this. Just blue sky thinking for a moment, because Mm. I read a blog, and we'll put a a link to it in the show notes that you wrote back in 2015, but it really resonated to me when I read it just recently, about whether we should really be challenging ourselves to think about a new structure or model for our organisations. I think you mentioned at that point the John Lewis partnership Uh for people Uh overseas listeners, it's very much a a co-owned organisation. Employees are partners in the enterprise. Could that possibly be a model for the future that we need to think more about? Definitely. I mean, I think that co-owned organisations or organisations with large employee shareholdings and so on, I do think that that dynamic is very different. It doesn't solve all the problems. No. Because even if you're John Lewis, you still have to make sure that you're listening. You know, and I think if you look at some of the different models in the startups that there are. Yes. You know, we're sitting here in Bermondsey, which used to be the heart or one of the hearts of Docklands, you know, yes. going back 100, 150 years. Now it's the centre of tech startups and, you know, I think we just need to think much more about how such organisations work and what they need. I can't not ask you quickly about politics because you spent some time in Number 10 working for Tony Blair and, as you said afterwards, David Cameron as well. First of all, what's that really like? Are you allowed to say, is it anything like Yes, Prime Minister? (laughs) There are certainly aspects of Yes, Prime Minister about it. But I was very lucky because I worked for a government that had a big majority, had a clear strategic narrative, as it were, extremely loyal cohort of MPs and ministers. I'm not saying there weren't disputes between the Chancellor and the Prime Minister. It would be foolish to pretend that there weren't. But it was all within a kind of context of how you take the country forward. And I have to tell you, you know, Tony was a fantastic person to work for. I mean, the atmosphere in Number 10, it could be very tense, obviously, when there were big issues around But, you know, we were a group that worked together, liked each other. There was a real sense of solidarity and support for what the government was doing. And also, Tony is an extremely personable person who had absolutely no side to him. So, you know, he would wander the corridor talking to you. You He was open to talking to you at any time. And he also kind of said thank you. Which right. is also very nice. You Absolutely. Know. It was lovely. And of course, you know, when I was there, so he and Cherie had just had Leo, so there was a baby pottering around, which was also extremely nice. It really humanised Number 10. And to be fair, you know, Gordon and certainly the Cameron since very much kept that going, you know, with the children and all the rest mm. of it, you know. We always have to remember that, you know, there's a lot of criticism of politicians at the moment. A lot of it seems to me to be extremely unfair because these are ordinary people trying to do an extraordinary job, you know, and I think that this whole sense of if you decry Parliament, which is the kind of foundation of our freedoms in this country, Mm -hmm. and you start undermining Parliament or undermining the judges or undermine, then, you know, you're getting to a very, very dangerous place here. And I think all of us need to be very careful 
about where some of the current rhetoric and so on is tending. I know Brexit divides opinion, but surely we can all agree that the foundations of, as I say, parliamentary representative democracy is what keeps this country safe. Are you worried at the moment? Yes, I'm extremely worried. Because I know this kind of will sound crazy to a lot of people, but, you know, when I was at school and you learned about the 1930s Mm -hmm. and you thought to yourself, how on earth, how on earth could that happen? How on earth could people in, you know, Germany and Italy and Spain, how on earth could their civil society structures just collapse and allow that to happen? And, you know, when I was growing up, it could never happen here was a kind of fundamental tenet that we all had. Yes. Well, the danger is, uh, you know, I'm not sort of being stupid about it, but if you start unpicking some of those kind of fundamentals that, as I say, keep us safe, then quite quickly you end up in a place... You know, so you talk about, you know, the will of the people with a capital W and a capital P, but the people who are saying what they think the will of the people are, without, as it were, really thinking about that the will of the people can change at any point in time, or what is it really? The fact that if I'm arrogating to myself as a spokesman Mm. for the will Mm. of the people, well, hang on a minute, you know, we can look back in history and see people who did that themselves and where that led to. I suppose what you're really saying is that for the will of the people to be safe and sound and protected, it needs parliamentary structures, needs parliamentary democracy, it Mm. needs the judges, it needs the court system, it needs all those things because those shore it up. It doesn't exist on its own. That's exactly right. It's a mob rule without those things. Absolutely. It's the loudest voice. It is. The sharpest shriek, if you like, that gets the attention. It is, and when you kind of, then you move to silence the opposition. Absolutely. It's a really slippery slope. Mm. And the fact that we all believe it couldn't happen here Mm. makes it all the more dangerous because you inch down a road where your fundamental freedoms, but the fundamental things that keep you safe, as it were, get undermined and eroded. And then, well, where do you end up? Is there anything in particular you blame on this slow sort of erosion, if you like, and this antagonistic climate we seem to have got ourselves into. I always think back to that Aristotle quote. I think it was Aristotle who said, you know, you can comprehend or understand an opposing view without actually agreeing with it. You know, it's important that you entertain the idea. You don't have to agree with it. We've moved so far away from that position. Well, I think the reason, I mean, if we're talking about Brexit, I think the reason that's the case is because the fundamental consequences are so substantial. Right. You know, I think the problem here is it's not like, you know, people who oppose Brexit believe that the consequences of it will be devastating and damaging for the UK, whether it's a soft Brexit, a hard Brexit or a no-deal Brexit. And, you know, I think people find it hard to comprehend how people would be prepared to go down that kind of route without understanding the consequences for their fellow citizens. It goes back to this question, doesn't it? Calling a referendum on something which is as complex and difficult as this and then one, as it, half of the argument saying it's going to be the easiest thing to do in history with no consequences, and then ending up where we are now. I mean, I think that that polarisation arises directly from asking a question to which there is, in a sense, no answer. I think it's Tony Blair that said there can't be a yes or no answer to that question. It's too complicated. And if you had 
given it to the people, it probably would have been four different options that they'd have had a choice about, you know. So I can completely see where you're coming from. Do you have a prediction for where we might end up? No, I'm just keeping my fingers crossed. Yes. And it seems to change week by week. This goes out in two weeks' time. Who knows what we're going <laughs> oh, to be gosh. there. Absolutely. <laughs> it could be all very different by then. You've done so much and you've had so many successes and been involved in so many really important issues and still are. What would be next for you? What's the next big thing? <laughs> I mean, I'm incredibly old. You have to kind of bear this in mind. Although, you know, it's amazing what dyeing your hair and putting on a lot of makeup can do to <laughs> make you look like still a member of the human race. What's next? Well, to be honest with you, David and I are thinking about how we might, 10 years on, revisit the report, say what's changed in the way that, you know, mm-hmm. what are we learned by being so heavily involved in the whole Engage for Success movement, along with lots of other fantastic people, let me be clear, almost a sort of where are we now? And I think in a sense we decided, to, we've done quite a lot of preliminary work thinking through some of this stuff, looking at, for example, you know, this issue about what people want out of work yes. and, and all of that, and the issue about the pressures on organisations. So, you know, what is the kind of, as it were, you know, the world of work now as opposed to 10 years yes. ago? We've done quite a lot of work thinking about that. But I think that we are going to hopefully find ourselves the time to revisit the whole issue around what can organisations do effectively. So that means finding some time to be able to go around again and talk to people about what they're doing. Because the danger with this is, not the danger, I mean, we just keep reinventing the wheel. And there is so much good practice out there. Mm. I mean, Engage for Success has really worked as a movement because it's a coalition of the willing together. Yes, yes. But I mean, I think we still need to think about how do we spread good practice? How do we talk to each other about what we've been doing? What worked? What didn't work? There's still a huge need to keep on doing all of that. And that... To be honest with you, you know, I'm really keen to find a way to keep on doing that work with David. You know, we speak not necessarily every day, but certainly every week. So finding a way of trying to revisit the report and getting some support for doing that, I think would be brilliant. That'd be wonderful. And as you say, things change all the time. So the new generation of people entering the workplace mm-hmm. is likely to have a very different aspirations to what they want out of the world of work. And, you know, yeah. certainly talking to my teenage boys, my 14-year-old's already talking about this portfolio career. I know. He's gonna, <laughs> he's gonna be doing a bit of that and trading stocks and shares. He's gonna be an entrepreneur and, he's, yeah. you know, and, yes, and he I can't know. be unusual. So I no. think you're absolutely right. The world of work is changing yes. all the time. Yeah. And, you know, the fact that... Yeah, I agree with you about the younger generation. I mean, I don't think it's that they want different things. I think that, in a sense, they're prepared to articulate That's a good what point. they want. That's a good you know, point. And so when I when I was at work, and my not at number 10, may I say, but, you know, in other employment, when the kind of boss said, jump, what did I say? I said, how are they? Of course, yes. Now, you know, you say that to my kids or your kids, and they're going to kind of look at you and go, well, Why? Exactly. Give me a reason. I'm not saying I'm not going to jump, but you need to have a, you know. Yes. (laughs) Once you're in an organisation of people asking for reasons, you know, because I said so, it's not going to hack it. No, no, that command control hierarchy is going very quickly. Right, so being very respectful of your time, let's turn, if you don't mind, to those quick fire questions. Uh So what would most surprise people about Nita Clark? Okay, I suppose that, I mean, and this is going back many, many, many years, the fact that I 
used to sing with David Bowie. Wow. I was part of the Arts Lab movement in Beckenham. <gasps> yeah, well, again, I'm giving away certain age secrets here. But, <laughs> you know, when David was recording Space Oddity and, you know, we had the free festival in the park in Beckenham. And, and actually, I have a playbill, which I'm the thing I'm most proud of. So it says David Bowie and then some other names of people singing in this, I don't remember exactly where the concert was, probably in the local pub. But there's my name on it. There's not that many people who shared a bill with David That's Bowie. That's fantastic. I would say I don't think I fully realised the influence that David Bowie had on so many people, both artists and just the general public, until he died, actually. And I think it was was today. And I thought, my goodness me, you know, these are very serious grown-up broadcasters that are having a wobble here. What was he like, really, as a It was just fascinating. I mean, he was really interesting, but also, you know, he was a South London boy. He was... He was very nice. I mean, I know it kind of sounds a stupid thing to say, but he was very nice and very generous and and actually generous. That's, I think, something that perhaps people don't quite take enough into account in terms of the amount of time, effort and energy he spent with us in Beckenham, you know, helping us sing or perform or, you know, be creative with crafts and stuff. He really was, at that time, isn't it? Yeah, actually, now I think about it, I think that was the most fantastic thing, that he really wanted to help people do, in a creative sense, what they wanted to do and what they were good at. And I think, you know, just for us, we were all teenagers. It was just the most wonderful example. That's amazing. If anyone doesn't realise how visionary he was, we'll put this in the show notes, there is a YouTube video of him talking about the impact of the internet. Mm. It's an old bit of film, but my goodness me, and I think, again, a very senior experienced BBC broadcaster is saying, but it's just another channel. And he said, oh, no, it's not. Mm. It's going to completely upset Mm. the world and Mm. turn it on its head. Mm. So it's a complete... Visionary as well. Yeah, Yeah. no, he was a a fabulous musician, but also a kind of one-off. Yes, absolutely. I mean, look, how lucky was I? How lucky were we? You know, right place, right time. Right, okay. Yeah, yeah. So much of that in life is true, isn't it? What do you know now that you wish you knew in your 20s or 30s? Be brave. Work out what you really think. Don't follow the crowd. Right. You know, be confident enough to have your own opinions, but also think about how you project yourself. Right. You know, because in this life, not just at work, but everywhere else, being a lone voice is not necessarily the most effective thing. Perhaps learning how to make friends and influence people, as they say. Yes. Not in a cynical way, but, you know, understanding that you do have to take people along with you, Mm. that just because something seems very apparent to you is not necessarily going to be absolutely apparent to people with different backgrounds and different experiences. The other thing is, you know, I've been very lucky because, in a sense, we're now in an era of diversity and inclusion and all of those things. And having the courage, I mean, some of the things I found most difficult in my career were dealing with how do you challenge received norms so that men can do certain things. Women trying to get their their kind of, you know, hands on some of the levers of power is a bad thing. I mean, how do you deal with, I mean, we're going back, you know, a few years here. How do you deal with people that have got, as it were, ideas 
that are that sort of received norms mm. and you can see need changing. I think it's a really important question, this actually, thinking about it, because one of the things that people say is that we're getting a cultural backlash from people who feel that diversity, inclusion and all of those things mean there's less of the pie for them. Mm. And I think that we need to confront this one head on. And the answer, of course, is that we're increasing the pie. Yes. And that moment of self-reflection and introspection to a degree is no bad thing. Oh, I think it's really important Mm. because, I mean, you know, as you can hear, I can get carried away by my own rhetoric here. So being able to step back a bit and think, well, hang on a minute, let's just think this through a little Mm. bit. is Mm. quite an important thing to be able to do. Yes. That's my self-reflective lesson for the day. When you think of the world's best communicator, alive or dead, who comes to mind? Well, I think Barack Obama was Mm -hmm. a fantastic communicator. Mm. And I think Tony Blair is a fantastic communicator. Whether you agree with them politically or not, the truth is it, it becomes apparent that they are also listeners. Yes, yes. You know, these are not people who've picked out opinions out of a brand barrel. These are people who thought deeply about things and are, in a sense, sharing their conclusions with you. That's the difference, isn't it, between a demagogue and somebody who's a real communicator. When you listen to them, you know that they have thought deeply Mm -hmm. about this stuff, you know, and they've not just picked the rhetoric off the shelf. The point is, do you feel that they are people with integrity who are sharing views that they have developed as a result of thinking with you? And that's not a bad value or behaviour in any leader, in any organisation. Absolutely, Mm. it's true. The meretricious rubbish that some leaders trot out with, you know, all the kind of boring spreadsheet that they Mm. trot out with, I mean, that doesn't inspire people, does it? That doesn't inspire trust, more to the point. You know, you want to know that somebody's thought about this stuff, why they've come to the conclusion that they have. You can disagree with it. That's not the issue. Mm. But you know that they're not trying to sort of pull the wool over your eyes. Yes. They're sharing with you the conclusions that they've come to. Yes. Honestly. And there's an integrity in that. I was going to say it all comes down to integrity. Yeah. So I might not agree with you, but I respect you and I will still follow you. But the point is you can only really have dialogue with somebody, you know, who's willing to take you through their process of thinking. The final question. You now have a billboard for millions to see and you can write on that whatever you like what message are you going to have on that billboard well I guess it would be something along the lines of there's one race the human race Nita Clark it has been an absolute pleasure to have you on the show thank you so much for you're, your time you're very welcome I really enjoyed it <laughs> thank you so that's a wrap for this episode of the internal comms podcast For some detailed show notes on everything that Nita and I discussed, pop over to AB's website. That's abcom.co.uk. And while you're there, you might like to sign up for our monthly newsletter. It's called I Saw This and Thought of You. It's full of icy newsy nuggets, as well as some updates on the podcast. Now, as ever, I'm really keen to get your thoughts on this show and also your ideas for future guests. There's lots and lots of ways to get in touch. You can share your views on Twitter. You can share your views on LinkedIn. You can blog about the show. Also, if you enjoyed it, I'd be very grateful if you could rate the show on iTunes because apparently this is the very best way of making us more discoverable for other IC people out there. And to make sure you don't miss another episode, you can always subscribe 
on iTunes or your favourite podcast service. So all that remains is to say thank you. Thank you for listening to the Internal Comms Podcast with me, Katie McCauley. And until we meet again, remember, it's what's inside that counts.